The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. And as you know, I'm going to say this on every show. If you're not registered to vote, get registered to vote. Vote. And not only do I want you to vote, I want you to tell other people with disabilities to vote. We have a voice, but the voice will not be heard unless you vote. Get out the vote. Get out the vote. We've got to make it happen. And you're going to hear me saying that on every show. And today, we actually have a disability rights leader, someone that I really admire uh, and have for a long time. He is out there fighting the fight for people with disabilities on their own rights every day. He is the executive director of the National Disability Rights Network. Welcome to the show, Kurt Decker. Thank you, Joyce. It's good to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. Um, so, Kurt, you've been with uh, the National Disability Rights Network, frequently known as NDRN. Wow. <laughs> Since it was founded in 1982, I see you started at a very, very young age. That's correct. Thank you so much. <laughs> Actually, uh, I, I started even before that because I became the executive director of the Maryland affiliate uh, of uh, NDRN uh, in 1979 um, through 82. And as a, uh, an executive director of that very small new program created by Congress uh, to uh, protect the rights of people with developmental disabilities, I called my colleagues around the country to say, do we have a voice in Washington that's representing these new fledgling programs? Uh, and the answer was no. So I was part of a group of uh, executive directors that created the National Association uh, that became NDRN so that we would have someone that would be available to talk to both the administration and Congress about the need to keep these programs alive and hopefully grow them, uh, which is fortunately what's happened over the last 30 years. And has uh, Congress been supportive of NDRN? I would say overall, yes. Um, our history has been uh, uh, somewhat uh, interesting in that, as I said, our first program created in the late 70s as a result of the scandals in Willowbrook Institution on Staten Island, a horrible place that housed uh, many thousands of people with developmental disabilities. That scandal that uh, created the concept of a protection and advocacy program. And then what we were able to do uh, by being in Washington is add to that basic program additional programs that expanded our reach. And so now we are today a fully cross-disability program that can represent anyone with a disability. So Congress has been adding both uh, jurisdiction and money. So we have a program for people with mental illness. We have a program for people with traumatic brain injury. We have money to look at voting, as you mentioned, assistive technology, uh, services in voc rehab. And these programs have now all come together uh, and are now operated out in the states uh, by these agencies. And, you know, just to go back for a moment I, about something you said, I have found so often that, sadly, the history of the disability rights uh, world is not known, and, you know, as it is in other civil rights groups. So if you go to colleges or universities and you say, oh, who's Ed Roberts, you know, who's Justin Dart, I don't know. And so for that reason... Many people may not know about Willowbrook, uh, but it really was like 
a living hell on earth. Could you describe it for a minute to our listeners? Yes, and there are, I think if you go online and YouTube, you could probably find uh, the stories that Geraldo Rivera did in the mid-70s where he did surprise visits to Willowbrook uh, at the request of a doctor there who had been fired, actually, for telling parents of the residents of Willowbrook to object and uh, and uh, complain about the conditions. I believe there were almost 7,000 people with developmental disabilities in Willowbrook on Staten Island. It's one of the largest institutions uh, of its kind in the world, and the conditions were absolutely horrible. Even in earlier, uh, Senator Robert Kennedy had visited uh, Willowbrook and declared it a snake pit. It took another 10 years before the state actually began to downsize Willowbrook and move people into the community. And it was a result of that expose uh, and scandal that uh, the protection and advocacy programs were created. And it's interesting that in our history, it's been it takes a scandal sometimes to actually uh, get movement. And so, again, in the 80s, in the mid 80s, uh, Senator Weicker uh, conducted an investigation of conditions in mental hospitals, and not surprisingly, found the same kind of conditions uh, where people with mental illness were being housed. And so we went uh, worked with Senator Weicker and created a protection and advocacy program for people with mental illness. And then most recently, with the uh, scandal out in Iowa with the turkey farm, where we found people uh, being abused and uh, being denied uh, minimum wage, having their Social Security checks uh, stolen, Social Security then came to us and asked us to be involved in a project to try to protect those people. So the, the bad news is that there's all these abuses and discrimination. The good news is if we can uh, uncover them, sometimes we can get uh, congressional action and funding to try to prevent it from happening again. And that's the thing. That Willowbrook would not have gone on for 10 years today because uh, you have the ability to go in anywhere and, you know, evaluate what's going on. And I know you would have been all over that. Yes, that's correct. One of the, one of the in the wisdom of Congress back, I would say even the late 70s, they understood that in order for a program like mine to be able to protect people in these situations, we had to have the ability to go in and access the client, access their records, get into that facility, look around, see what was going on. And we've had that kind of authority uh, for 40 years. Now, it's often difficult to enforce, people don't like us coming through their facilities and questioning the conditions and the treatment that people with disabilities are receiving, but it's a critical uh, authority and weapon for us to be able to walk into any place. We've even had uh, Cong- uh, courts now expand our authority to include schools. Um, we, we, try, we will even go into a school and investigate the death of a child who was overly restrained, and while the school will try to resist that, the courts have said, no, that is a facility, and the PNAs are allowed to go in there and investigate that death. And, for example, that is what is going on right now with Bridgewater in Connecticut. Um, that's correct. Unfortunately, we still have uh, a lot of uh, facilities uh, still in existence around the country. I, the, you know, it's a very much of a glass half empty, half full. Many states have now closed their large congregate uh, facilities, but there are still many states that rely on over-institutionalization of people with a range of disabilities. And so our work is constantly trying to um, raise the issue that these are not good places. Uh, they're not the places where people today uh, in society, especially under the uh, the requirements of uh, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Olmstead decision that says segregation of people with disabilities is discrimination. And so we're using the Olmstead opinion to really move people into the community. And we're doing that in conjunction with the Department of Justice and other allies, but we are one of the major enforcers of the Olmstead decision. You know, Kurt, how do you receive your funding? And why I'm asking this is, can an individual make a contribution? Yes. Uh, well, most of our funding, the majority of our funding, comes from the federal government. Congress has to appropriate um, money for the PNA system annually. And 
Unfortunately, in this current budget climate, uh, that money has got very uh, uh, stable. Um, the last couple of years, we've received no real increases and have just been fighting hard to maintain the status quo. Now, when the money does go from Congress to the federal agencies and it's then distributed uh, around the country to each of my programs, and I have a program in every state and territory, um, then many of the PNAs have been able to uh, raise funding uh, through a variety of sources, uh, both private fundraising, and so they're mostly 501c3 charitable organizations, so they can receive individual contributions, and that's tax deductible, and so can we at NDRN. But then they also are able to uh, receive funding from states. Some states are willing to put uh, additional money into the PNA, and progressive states who see the, the, the value of advocacy uh, for people with disabilities uh, have done that. So it's it's much, somewhat of a patchwork, but the, the base funding is from the federal government. I asked you that because I think it's so important what you're doing because you really are out there protecting people with disabilities. Um, how large is NDRN? Well, our network itself, uh, as I said, has an agency in every state and territory, and they are our members. And Congress is, is right now funding us at about $140 million, which may sound like a lot, but when you, were, when you divide it around 57 entities, um, it really isn't um, sufficient to represent all the people with disabilities um, who need uh, or could benefit from our services. Uh, our national office here in Washington has about 25 staff, and we have subject matter experts who are skilled in all of the various issues, whether it's transportation or housing or Medicaid, all of the programs that the people with disabilities rely on, and then we're able to provide training and technical assistance to our affiliates around the country and hopefully keep a sort of consistent quality of services across the country. Um, you know, and that that is wonderful that you're doing that. You know, I when I was reviewing the work that you're doing, I saw that you're doing work with people with mental health disabilities. When I was reviewing everything that you do, could you talk to our listeners about that? Absolutely, yes. It was very uh, important in the mid-'80s, as I said earlier, where we were able to create a program a protection and advocacy program specifically for people with mental illness. Now, initially, in the mid-'80s, uh, the program was limited to people with mental illness who resided in facilities and institutions. But then in 2000, we were able to expand that jurisdiction because we knew the people with mental illness lived all throughout our society, not just in institutions. And so for 30 years, we have been providing legally-based advocacy to people with mental illness in a variety of areas, employment, housing, uh, certainly abuse and neglect in facilities, uh, and trying really hard to, uh, to change you know, some of the attitudes in our society about people with mental illness. And talk about changing attitudes. I Forever, just like, as you know, I have epilepsy, and, you know, we are a group that has a hard time getting disability, uh, employment, just as everyone, you know, the, only 70% of people with disabilities are even counted in the workforce. But I have to say that with the media talking constantly about you know, we must prevent people from having access to uh, guns, which I agree with them, uh, but they'll name different groups, and one of them always included is people with mental health issues. Now, what this is doing is this is creating an incredible stigma where no one wants to talk about having a mental health issue because they're afraid someone's going to think that they're violent or they're going to do something terrible. Um, so anyway, I wanted to ask you, what's your opinion of that? Well, it's very disturbing, and it's something that we're very concerned about and are working very hard to try to you know, uh, beat back some of this ongoing and increasing stigma, stigmatization of this very vulnerable population. Uh, it's very frustrating when you know that the statistics are that people with mental illness are the subject of violence 
far more uh, in excess of any uh, indication that a person with a mental illness might, in fact, engage in some kind of dangerous behavior. And as, as you just said, Joyce, I think uh, with, the, with policymakers trying to, I think, avoid the gun issue and then thereby demonizing people with mental illness, and not only is it a, a ploy to not really focus on some of the, you know, the real uh, reasons why we have so many violent deaths in this country, but as, as you said, it's increasing the stigma, it's forcing people underground, uh, and so the very thing that they say they want, which is people to come forward, get mental health treatment, you know, uh, early uh, interventions so they don't deteriorate and maybe engage in, in uh, bad behavior, it'll be the opposite effect because you will be scaring people into not uh, admitting that they might have an issue and seeking the care and treatment that's available. And, of course, the other problem is there isn't that much available. We have not funded the mental health care system uh, very well, and the conversations in Washington now are about you know, not exp- expanding that care but reinstitutionalizing people. So it's almost like we're going backwards. And keeping this stigma alive is going to have, I think, long-term detrimental effects, not only on the individuals who are uh, experiencing this issue, but our society as a whole. You know, I so agree with you. And we had uh, Jennifer Mathis from Bazelon on, and she was saying what you just said, which is we're going backwards, you know, how terrible it is, and, and that there were different articles written where people are actually saying we need to have institutions again, which, you know, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Um, And I think everyone needs to know that, you know, there is that push by some politicians. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's certainly a push for reinstitutionalization, and there's also another effort, and it's called assisted outpatient treatment, which is, again, one of these concepts that sounds good when you talk about it. And I often say that it's catnip to legislators who don't want to spend any money but want to pretend that they're addressing the problem. And the idea of assisted outpatient treatment is that uh, people are identified as having a mental illness, possibly deteriorating, possibly engaging in bad behavior, and they can then be forced to take medication or to get treatment. Sounds good until you think about, well, who would do that? And right, right now, the only entity in most states is the police. And there isn't another group of people who are less uh, prepared to deal with the difficulties of dealing with a person with a mental illness than the police. And so you're reading stories all the time about someone calling 911, alerting you know, authorities that there's a problem, the police going out, and the next thing you know, they've shot the person or they've killed the person. Um, so for a, something like assistive outpatient treatment to work, you have to have a very robust community mental health system that could provide the services, could help identify folks and actually work with them, work, have mental health professionals working with them. So again, another sad result of all the stigmatization is the idea that we can force people to take treatment, even though we really don't have any good techniques on how to do that. Right, right, which is oriented toward uh, pharma, pharmacological uh, answers than therapeutical. So, Absolutely, yeah, and, and just the concept of coercion, that this is a group, this is a population that we can coerce into treatment. And, again, it's reminiscent of, you know, what we did for, you know, decades with people with developmental disabilities and people with mental illness by forcing them into institutions, keeping them out of sight, uh, not allowing them to be full participants in our society. Well, I have many uh, people I meet that are looking for employment, and they tell me, you know, under no circumstances, not only would I not want my employer to know, I don't want my friends or colleagues to know because they'll immediately think I'm going to do something violent. And these are people with depression or, you know, bipolar disorder, whatever it is, even though, as you mentioned earlier, you know, people with mental health issues, if there is something violent that occurs, it's more directed to themselves 
than it is, you know, to the to the outside world. But but this is causing people, you know, to not want to talk about it. And then when you don't talk about it, you don't deal with it. That's right. When you don't and deal I, with it, I, then I, you have other problems. And this, and this, the other, I mean, similarly, if you don't under the under the ADA, uh, if you don't disclose that you have a disability whatever disability, including mental health issues, then you're not entitled to the protections of the ADA or the reasonable accommodations that the ADA guarantees people with disabilities. So again, it's a spiraling downhill effect where a person with a mental health issue, keeping it secret, and then if they have a problem in the workplace and the employer says, well, you're not doing your job, um, it may be as a result of their mental illness, they can be fired and they have no protection because they've not, one, divulged that they have a disability and they haven't asked for a reasonable accommodation that may have been able to allow them to continue working with, you know, some fairly inexpensive accommodation, maybe a different work schedule, maybe some, uh, some time off, maybe a change in assignments to allow them to adjust and continue to work be a, a, a full participant in society, a tax-paying person in society, but because they have not disclosed their disability, they're not entitled to the protections of the ADA. That is an excellent point. That is an excellent point. And if you're listening to the show right now, I hope you got that. Because, you know, if you are employed, and then as Kurt said, if something happens, where you are discriminated against, but you have not identified yourself at that company, you have no recourse. I mean, that alone is so important uh, and such an excellent point. And, Kurt, I wanted to ask you anyway, in reference to the mental health issues that are going on, what can our listeners do to help? Well, I would hope that they don't, number one, um, accept some of the you know, uh, what I was, or better word, propaganda, some of the, the kinds of things that you're reading in, you know, editorials and op-ed pieces that this is, that all about gun violence in our country is a result of people with mental illness. Uh, I, I, so I think, first of all, you have to steel yourself to not, you know, get lulled into that as the answer. Secondly, um, you know, if you have a mental illness or you have friends of mental illness, you know, reach out to them. Let them know that um, you're you're supportive of their problem and they want and you want to help them if they want it. Uh, and and I think employers have to get educated about what it means to have um, to hire someone with mental illness and the fact that you know, there may be uh, that they are you know fully competent uh, to work and that if they do have certain issues, there are reasonable accommodations that they can get information about um, that won't hurt their business uh, and that they're allowed to, they'll be able to keep uh, a good worker uh, in the workplace uh, through some uh, fairly easy ways of accommodating a person's mental illness. You know, hearing you talk about this, this also reminds me of post-traumatic stress disorder because this is another disability that, you know, veterans, for example, do not want to talk about. And when I was actually at a company where they said to me, well, we've never hired anyone with post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, just think what could happen. And I said, okay, let's start here. Yes, you have women that have been assaulted, men that have been assaulted, people that have seen a horrible event surely as last week, we sent all of our condolences to the families and friends of the victims in Orlando. I can assure you, anyone that survived that or saw that will have post-traumatic stress disorder. This is another issue where people are afraid to talk about it or disclose. But you know, there are accommodations that under the ADA to be provided to you. So um, I hope you also would listen to what Kurt has mentioned and not be afraid to keep this uh, hidden. And you know what I mean, Kurt? Employers also have this really strong aversion to a veteran with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I think that uh, we do have a lot of work to do with employers to get them comfortable with the variety of disabilities that are out there and uh, uh, let them... Um, know and realize 
these are competent workers who really could contribute to their business. And again, with some fairly inexpensive accommodations uh, that probably most people in the, in the office wouldn't even know was occurring, you know, can keep uh, this worker on the job uh, and a fully participating member of our society. Uh, there are resources out there. There's the, uh, the JAN network that uh, excellent uh, services to employers about what kind of accommodations certain types of disabilities uh, can benefit from. Uh, and uh, I encourage your listeners to, to check in to find out there is information out there. So employers are not alone. They don't have to figure this out on their own, which, again, I think is another uh, concern they have that somehow you know they're going to be stuck with um, someone that they may have to fire and then they're going to be sued. And so there's all of these aspects that, that sort of play into that reluctance to take a chance and hire a person with a disability, whether it's a person with mental illness, whether it's a veteran, or as you well know, um, people with traditional disabilities, uh, diabetes, epilepsy, uh, because of people's sort of ignorance about what it really means to have that kind of a condition. Right. And before we go to break, Kurt, uh, what I wanted to ask you, our listeners, what can they do uh, writing to legislators to, to you know, speak out against it, uh, speak out to make changes occur that would benefit people with mental health issues, but in addition to be supportive of your work? Well, I think you know, they could take a leaf uh, from the LGBT playbook, which is coming out can be a very powerful and important thing. So if you are in a workplace or in an environment and have a disability and people around you don't know that, you could probably cha- change some attitudes by letting people know um, that um, you are experiencing this issue and you're living a good life. So I think everyone has the ability to change people's minds uh, about that. But if, if people with disabilities don't come forward, you know, don't participate uh, in the voting process, don't, um, uh, aren't comfortable you know, talking about their condition, then I think that allows um, these, these um, uninformed opinions to sort of be there, possibly expand. And then when you get uh, a crisis, when you get uh, a bad situation, uh, it just sort of you know, plays into uh, people's already um, incorrect uh, assumptions about people with disabilities. Right. Agreed. Well, right now we're going to get ready to go to break. Hey, if you just joined us, we are talking to Kurt Decker, the Executive Director of the National Disability Rights Network, a national leader for people with disabilities. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Kurt. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. Hi, I'm Greg Grunberg from the TV show Heroes. One of my personal heroes is my son, who, like more than 3 million Americans, has epilepsy. When someone with epilepsy is having a seizure, their brain is temporarily producing more electricity than their body can handle. They can shake or stare or fall down. They can also even briefly lose consciousness. If you see someone having a seizure, please make sure they're comfortable and safe. And within a few minutes or less, the electrical overload will stop and they will be okay. To learn more, visit epilepsyfoundation.org. Thank you. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender. Hey, welcome back to the show. We are talking to Kurt Decker, the Executive Director of the National Disability Rights Network. And, Kurt, years ago, a few years ago, I read an awesome 
article that you wrote about subminimum pay for people with disabilities. I mean, where you really took a stand when I have to say there are many people, even some in the community, that were absolutely so upset thinking that 14C could go away. And I was so pleasantly surprised, and actually I was really surprised to hear Secretary Clinton talk about this since it is controversial, but, you know, speaking out against unequal pay for people with disabilities and saying that, you know, everyone should be paid equally. But many people don't know that with 14C, it is legal to pay some individuals with disabilities less than people without disabilities. So, Kurt, do you see an insight for this wage discrimination? Well, I'm glad you raised that, uh, Joyce. I'm not sure there's an end in sight, but I sort of say what we're doing is shaking the building and the bricks are falling off, um, but it, we're not yet at a point where uh, things are changing significantly. This is a great example of another disability policy that was well-intentioned but then went wrong. It was something created, you mentioned 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act, that was created in the late 1930s, uh, and the idea was that you know, businesses could hire people with disabilities at less than the minimum wage, get them into the workforce, get them trained, and then eventually they would develop into fully paid uh, workers. Uh, the great idea never happened. And then what occurred over the next many decades was various disability organizations create, created what we called sheltered workshops where they used the 14C rule to bring people with disabilities into segregated settings and provide them with some work but pay them uh, less than the minimum wage. And again, the idea was they were going to be trained, but what we found was people stayed there for 20 and 30 years and never moved out. I saw my first sheltered workshop in 1980 and was appalled uh, and then, you know, worked on this issue for many years. And finally, as you mentioned, we issued a report, which did, I think, alert a lot of people to the fact that something like four to 500,000 individuals, primarily with intellectual disabilities, are receiving sub-minimum wage. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, we raised that issue. We, we called it uh, segregated and exploited because we think that not only are they uh, segregated and away from people without disabilities, there may be an exploitation level where businesses are getting cheap labor through these contracts. Since that report, there's been some really good activity. The Department of Labor, excuse me, the Department of Justice uh, has weighed in in a couple of settings um, to uh, tell states that um, they were violating the ADA. We uh, brought a lawsuit out in Oregon where the judge uh, said in their opinion that the Olmstead opinion covered employment and segregation of people in employment was also discrimination against people with disabilities. So that's made a major change in Oregon, and several states now, several governors have issued executive orders saying they're going to do away with subminimum wage in their states. Maryland just passed a state law um, that trumps the federal law saying you have to pay the minimum wage in Maryland. So there are these pockets of change, I think, as a result of the conversation that I think we started several years ago. Uh, a lot more work to do, and as you said, it's controversial. There are many parents and service providers who think this is a good place for their child or their adult child uh, and don't want to see a change, but we need to keep pushing this concept that nobody should be paid below the minimum wage and people with disabilities should be out in the integrated competitive work field. So I'm hopeful that we're making changes uh, incrementally. I think that's how change happens, especially in these issues. And I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see a real change in attitude and hopefully change in practice. Well, you know, I also made a statement about this because I think it is so wrong. And immediately I had different people call me, uh, hey, Joyce, someone gave you the wrong information. You know, if, if we didn't have this... All these people would not have anywhere to go. They wouldn't have a job. They wouldn't have anything. But, in fact, in for example, you mentioned one state. Even in Vermont, they moved people out of shelter workshops and got the majority of people employment. 
So when someone said to me, well, what would happen to uh, Nancy? Nancy has Down syndrome, and now she won't have this, and she would want this. And my answer was, how do you know? Like, did she ever see another option? So, you know, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's right. I think everyone should be paid equally, or to me it doesn't work. You're absolutely right, and I do think it goes to an underlying issue in the disability world, and that is uh, an issue of low expectations. Uh, many people, and many well-intentioned people, you know, just don't uh, see the potential in the person with a disability, and that sort of drives, I think, bad policy, and it's what led to those you know, decades of protection and medicalization and, and charity and pity that we have to, you know, and what I think we're trying to put out there in the world today is that we don't, you don't need charity, you don't need pity, you need training and support and jobs, and this population has a right to be in the community and fully access the benefits of being in the community. There are risks, there's no question, and there are parents who, you know, are always nervous about the safety of their child, I understand that, I think that's, you know, uh, an important aspect, but, you know, there is something called dignity of risk. Um, in the disability world that says, you know, people have the right to make bad choices and to be out in the community, and that means some things can happen um, that we don't like. But is that um, worse than being stuck in an institution with no access to any kind of, uh, of a community life? Oh, I agree with you. You know, it won't be perfect. We never said it would be perfect. But on the other hand, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Um, and in many cases, it has been for the benefit of the CEO. And, you know, I don't know if companies that purchased this realize, you know, what's really happening. But I want to thank you, Kurt, for that report and for standing up uh, because, you know, change is coming. And I think that report had a lot to do with it. So thank you for doing that. Well, I hope so. We uh, we felt it was important to really um, let people know that this was going, this was happening, that it was legal, and and that there were many, many, many thousands of people involved. Uh, and and that is, I would say, uh, I'm happy to say, is one of the strengths of my organizations because I have an agency in every state and territory. We can learn about what's going on in any of these issues, whether it's subminimum sheltered employment, whether it's conditions in institutions, whether it's seclusion and restraint in schools, and I can aggregate that information from all of my agencies, and we can make often a very powerful statement about what's happening to different uh, populations of people with disabilities that should be addressed by both national and state policymakers. It's funny you would mention this about schools. I know that you are doing a lot to work to stop the abuse of students with disabilities, such as restraint and seclusion. And when I mention this, frequently actually, when I mention this to people, they can't envision that it's possible for this to go on. And I say, oh no, it does go on. As a matter of fact, I uh, when I was on, well, I'm still on the board of directors, but uh, the chair before me, one of the chairs of the board, her son uh, has epilepsy. That's where she got involved. And he's older now, but I remember her talking about when he was uh, in high school and he had a seizure, and they called her, and she says, well, where is he? And they had him locked in a closet. So I know that these bizarre things do happen, but... Uh, could you talk about that, Kurt? Certainly. Again, another subject of uh, several reports that we did because we, again, identified uh, that this was a, a practice that was happening in just about every state. And when I surveyed my members, I was really shocked uh, at the number of cases that each of my agencies were telling, uh, were experiencing and working on. And then again, by aggregating 
that experience from across 50 programs, uh, it was pretty hard for people to ignore it as a real problem. One of the major problems is I do think that um, many teachers um, are not trained well, and so then situations escalate, and then um, they're faced with a very serious problem, which is too late uh, to to ameliorate, and so they, they resort to some pretty drastic techniques, as you said, putting uh, children in closets, tying them to chairs, sitting on them, and we've had literally several deaths uh, where a teacher, in trying to restrain a student, sat on the student, big teacher, little child, and killed them. I mean, that is not what we expect to be happening on our schools, and certainly not to be happening with children with disabilities. And it's, it's, it requires uh, a lot of training uh, and support to teachers. Um, it also requires some transparency. We find parents who can't don't understand why their child doesn't want to go to school, or especially if they're nonverbal, crying and sort of resisting getting on the bus, uh, only to find out that the child's been being restrained or secluded for months and months, and no one told the parent. And yet, they should, they're supposed to be involved in the IP process and you know fully involved in their children's education plan, uh, and yet didn't know that the school was engaging these practices. So, you know, we're sort of taking a twofold approach of making it transparent so families know that this is happening, but also supporting training uh, for teachers so that they don't have to get to that level uh, where they, that's their only resort. And you know what? Horrifying. When you talk about the teacher sitting on the child and the child dying, that is horrifying. I mean, you know, for example, I gave the example of epilepsy, but autism or mental health issues, you know, there there are things that are going to happen. You can have a complex partial seizure and look as if you're in a drunken stupor or if someone goes near to you, you know, reach out uh, to keep them away, which looks as if you're striking the person. And when you restrain people in these situations, you can kill them. So, you know, I mean, like tying a person to a chair. This is outrageous. Well, you know, it, it, it's an interesting issue because, and we, I think we've been talking about it throughout the, the the program. As we bring people into the community, which is certainly one of our goals, we do need to be aware that there are so many community resources that aren't prepared for people with disabilities. So, as you just said, the police. Uh, who are not familiar with people with seizures or cerebral palsy or other disabilities, uh, medical personnel. Uh, we have to make sure as we bring people into the community that there are dentists and doctors that know how to work with people with disabilities. Because we've shut people away for so many years, there's all these community resources um, who just haven't had a lot of experience interacting with people with disabilities. So in order to really assure that community integration is quality and a better place for people, we have a lot of work to do to make sure that every aspect of society, whether it's the bus driver or, or the policeman or someone in the CVS uh, knows that that person um, needs has a disability and has to have to be treated in a certain way. Uh, otherwise, we aren't going to be able to see the full benefits of community integration. Right. Funny you mentioned that about police because uh, there was an incident not long ago where a police officer went to a home after a 911 call and the person was having a seizure and they thought he looked very combative, so they mm -hmm. actually hogtied him and killed him. So, you know, you're, you are so right um, and I hope we can do more and more to bring all of this out, but uh, that is so important work that you're doing. And, Kurt, you're doing so much. I don't know how you're going to answer this next question, but my question is uh, your opinion. What do you feel is the unfinished business for those of us living in the disability community? Because, as you know, Last year, we celebrated the 25th anniversary of the signing of the ADA. Uh, but, you know, we have a long way to go. Uh, but to you, what, what do you think is the most important uh, unfinished business? Well, I think I alluded to it just uh, previously. I, uh, as an organization that really does believe in closing down big congregate facilities and bringing people into the community, I don't want 
that to be just bringing people out of big bad places and putting them little bad places. <laughs> I want to make sure that community integration is real and quality, and so that when we bring folks with disabilities into the mainstream society, they get to participate in everything, whether it's church or recreation, uh, good medical care, uh, there's, a, there's a good transportation system so that they're not isolated. Uh, you, can be, you can just be as, as, as segregated in a three-bed group home as you can in a large institution if the resources in the community aren't all working together to make sure that that person is involved and accepted. So we have a lot of work to do. I mean, I think the ADA is a great example of a wonderful statute. I was privileged to have worked on it in 1990, but I've seen the need for constant vigilance and enforcement to really make sure that the promise of that statute happens. Even today, we're fighting with a variety of agencies that still haven't you know, fully complied with the ADA 25 years later. So it's it's something that's why my organizations, I think, are in critical and will need to be around forever, that we always have to be vigilant to make sure that we don't slide back, uh, that we are moving forward, and that we're really fulfilling the promise of these very important civil rights statutes for people with disabilities. Just a paper law doesn't make a difference until it is fully enforced. Yeah, there have been those that have tried to weaken it and are still trying to weaken it. So, uh, you, you know, being vigilant about that, you know, is so important. And, you know, I don't know how it is possible that 70% of people with disabilities are unemployed. You know, all, obviously the numbers don't lie, so, you know, we have to know there's discrimination and or stigma and or fear or ignorance. But, you know, don't you think that's amazing, Kurt, that 25 years later that that needle has not moved? Yes, and Joyce, I really am, and I'm disappointed because we did – the ADA has a very large section about employment and employment discrimination. And our hope back in 1990 that that somehow would really uh, open the doors to full employment for people with disabilities. Clearly that's not happened. So that is certainly one of the existing challenges. And I guess it's, a, it's an interesting lesson to learn that uh, just passing a law by itself doesn't necessarily change attitudes, doesn't change behavior. Uh, and so there has to be a fairly comprehensive approach to our society about the value of people with disabilities um, and the competence of people with disabilities, uh, and then support that with a strong legal framework uh, that allows then people to you know, get protection if they feel discriminated against. But clearly, uh, just one of those things alone is not enough. Right. And what you were talking about pity, and that obviously is one of the big problems. And getting back to uh, the sheltered workshop, even if people hear about this, oh, Goodwill Industries or wherever it is, here, here, and I'm not just picking on them, but wherever it is, here are people with disabilities, you know, working in this facility. You know, that impacts people thinking, oh, poor them. Thank goodness they have this work to do, and, and that has to change. That pity has to go. The charity has to go uh, because it has been way too long that we have not seen a substantial increase. I mean, you know, it's horrifying, but I hope, uh, just as you do, that as we keep educating and fighting, that we will see changes in that area. Yes, I agree. Uh, I think that uh, we are still, even though we've made great progress, I still we still have some vestiges of this sort of protectionism that this population needs to be protected, not empowered uh, to take charge of their own lives. And I think that's going to be a constant ongoing battle for all of us in the field um, as we move forward. But I think it's, an, it's a goal that we can accomplish. Well, uh, Kurt, th first, thank you so much for being with us today. I just respect you so much. And listeners, um, if you know of friends that you think should hear this, remember this show is archived on my website, BenderConsult.com, and 
on Voice America. So uh, you've done so much. You know, when I read your bio, wow, look, you know, look how much you've accomplished. In addition to thinking how many people you've helped through the National Disability Rights Network. But if you had to choose something, what do you consider your greatest accomplishment? Well, thank you for those kind words. And I must say I'm a lucky uh, man to have had this kind of a career where I feel like uh, hopefully I have contributed to uh, bettering the lives of, of, of some folks. I, I guess I believe that because I have been around for so long with this one organization, I think building this legally-based advocacy network um, and making sure it's secure and in place throughout the country so anyone with a disability has the potential of getting help um, if they're feeling discriminated is has been a, a great uh, joy for me that and as an attorney who wasn't trained in any of this kind of work when I was in law school when I went to law school it was uh, all about being you know a corporate lawyer so to be able to have moved into this area uh, and and seen the growth of this organization has been has really been a, a wonderful experience for me and and I, I believe always that that the disability community needs allies and 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 the legal enforcement is really a critical part of the whole disability movement well, I agree, and again, thank you for what you've spent your life doing because, as I mentioned, I can't begin to think how many people you have impacted and helped. So, you know, uh, thank you and keep on fighting the good fight. Thank you, Joyce. I enjoyed being with you. Well, Kurt, before you go, what message, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I, w- I would say to listeners that, even though there may be all these bumps in the road and you know, policies and, and lack of services, to just remember the incredible progress we have made over the last 40, 50 years. It takes time. And when I work with younger people who are very impatient about getting things changed, you have to, um, you have to you know, I think, really value the incremental change. I said yesterday at a meeting at the White House, look at John Lewis, the civil rights icon. He had to mm-hmm. sit down yet again last week in the House of Representatives, Mm -hmm. and he had done that 50 years ago. So uh, I do think we have to take the long view and see that progress um, can be made, is happening, and we just have to keep at it. Right. I agree. Well, thanks again. And, folks, you know we end every show with a quote from someone that we believe has impacted the world. And today that quote is, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, said Martin Luther King, Jr. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters, at voiceamerica.com. Talk to you next week. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel.